I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Welcome to podcast number 45. Once again, I'm away from home, missing Rosie and the fields of East Anglia and my family. Not in that order. I don't know, maybe. This time, I'm in Birmingham, and uh, I'm just about to do a bug David Bowie special tonight. You might be able to hear the walk-in music playing. I'm on stage in... 17 minutes and I was in Oxford last night that was fun and in Brighton the night before that at the Dome which was great and uh, you know after the horrible events at the concert in Manchester on Monday it's actually been really good to be able to get away from home and, and out and about and visit a few cities and see people getting on with their lives and, and with each other And I get to listen to a lot of David Bowie, so that cheers me up. And other people too, I hope. So, on we go. Podcast number 45 features a conversation with British director Edgar Wright. He directed Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, The World's End, and the forthcoming Baby Driver, as well as a lot of great, great television projects. Spaced, I suppose, being the most obvious one. But he's done a lot, Edgar. We recorded this conversation in March of this year, 2017, in the kitchen of a London apartment that Edgar was staying in. And I had a cold or a sort of weird throat thing. So sometimes I sound as if I've just woken up after a long, sexy night. Some of you might enjoy that. Uh, if not, I apologise. So this is not so much a career overview with Edgar as a ramble down memory lane in the course of which we recall how we got to know each other in the early 2000s when we'd often find ourselves at parties and events at a venue called the TARDIS in Clerkenwell. It's not there any longer. That's where the expanded Farringdon station now sits. But we mentioned the TARDIS in our conversation, so I thought I'd tell you what it was. Edgar and I also confess to our involvement in a series of entertainment industry scams. There's no other word for them. Perpetrated in the early parts of our careers, and these revelations will almost certainly rock the industry to its very core. We also hear how Edgar helped Matt Lucas and David Walliams achieve their comedy potential, sort of. And we discuss the awkward time when my comedy wife, my wife, Joe Cornish first began spending a lot of time with Edgar, even though Edgar was supposedly in a stable and loving relationship with Simon Pegg. (sighs) Edgar and Joe ended up writing on Steven Spielberg's Tintin film together, as well as on the first iteration of Ant-Man for Marvel Studios. Something that meant Joe ended up spending less and less time with his hairy husband. 
and their six-music podcast baby. Yeah, I know. Anyway, I hope you'll enjoy hearing myself and Edgar skipping nimbly between light-hearted banter and seething resentment. I'm joking. There's no seething resentment. All right. There's also plenty of awkward celebrity encounter chat, high-level name-dropping, and hot fuzz memories. But to warm up the inconsequential waffles, I start by reminding Edgar of the story I told Louis Theroux on podcast number 10 about the time I went to see the film Sunshine with Edgar and I ate a stinky sandwich in the cinema. Oh, Mike, hey. Mike's the promoter of the shows. How are you doing, Mike? Uh, good. Uh, a little embarrassed that I've walked in on you doing this. But... Just doing the podcast intro. Mike, you've just joined The Fall. Yeah, weird. <laughs> this is true, listeners. Mike is a Manchester guy, and he knows some of the members of the band The Fall. And how did you get invited to join? Uh, on a WhatsApp group. He said, does anyone want to play Keys in The Fall? And I said yes, and I was first, so I got the gig. That's how you join The Fall. You've got to be in WhatsApp. I'm not on WhatsApp. That's why I'm not in any exciting no. bands at the moment. I think it's because I lived in Manchester for 35 years now. It's my turn. I took a ticket at the deli counter, and now it's my go. So. What are you playing? Keys, synths. Complicated melody lines there? Uh, no, never more than three notes at a time. I, I, that's how I keep it anyway. So, yeah, nice and easy. Right, man. Uh, I'm on stage in 10 minutes, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Here we go, podcasts. I'll speak to you later. the story about when we you and I went to see sunshine and I started eating a sandwich <laughs> you it's funny and then I got food poisoning <laughs> as punishment for bad cinema etiquette the thing is I only have I'd heard that second hand through people talking about it on the podcast yeah and I only have a vague recollection of it of the, so sm- if, of the smell of chicken stuffing <laughs> as oh, now that you're stuffing. here now that you're here now I'm getting a sense memory of it <laughs> now, when I heard it second hand from other PO. people people were saying like <laughs> people were saying oh is it you, did Adam really pissed you off once eating a sandwich I said I don't remember that to be honest I don't think I dis- I, I think I probably I um, just gave you an odd look probably no you shifted uncomfortably <laughs> and I said I was talking to Louis about it and I said quite rightly you know it's it's not on. It's not something I do now. And now that I've got children, and I, when I used to go to the cinema with them a lot, I remember the <laughs> earliest memories I have are of being acutely aware of not wanting to disturb other cinema goers. I mean, generally, yeah. when you're going to the movies with children, all bets are off. Yeah. If it's a kid's film, you know, it's just a melee. But if I was going to see maybe a 12 or something where the audience is a bit more mixed, it's not exclusively children, yeah. then I'd be quite anxious about the boys making too much noise or munching too loudly in quiet scenes all these things that as adults you know instinctively as children you have to learn them like mate you don't munch in a quiet scene you wait for some explosions and then you start munching i had a thing the other day where i was um 
I went to see Scorsese's Silence. Right. I saw it in Los Angeles. It's a long Christmas. one, isn't it? How long is that? It's like two and three quarter hours long. Okay. But it feels a lot longer, apparently. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I'll say this, is I'm glad I saw it. It's a very powerful ending, and so it's not something that I necessarily think I'll be in a, a rush to revisit. Yeah. I think Silence is actually sort of a worthy one, but sometimes with awards films at the end of the year... I call them like broccoli movies. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I, I have to watch this. It's edifying. <laughs> yeah, it's good for you. It's good for your moral fiber. Yeah. So maybe to counteract the, um, the potential worthiness of it, I bought a big bag of M&M's. And then I thought, I'll make these M&M's last through the two and three quarter hours running time. But then in the movie, it's the whole movie is about kind of um, priests from Spain being tortured in Japan. And Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield are so stick thin and obviously went on a brutal weight loss regime to get into shape for the movie. And I texted Andrew Garfield. This is my first name drop of many. Okay. But I, I texted him later after I'd seen the movie. And then I said, as I was eating the M&M's, I started to feel that you were looking down on me from the screen for this transgression that I was like doing something really bad. And that you and, the, and I started to feel like the characters would really want the M&M's right now. <laughs> Whilst they were being like captured and tortured. What was his reply? He thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. Laughing with lol. Lol. <laughs> I'm eating M&M's now. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> Are you quite a tolerant cinema goer generally, or do you get upset quite easily by bad manners in cinemas? I get annoyed by people who think they can't be seen looking at their iPhone. It's like, I can see you, cunt. <laughs> it's like, I don't care if you're hiding it in your jacket. It's still in my field of vision. Yeah. So I hate that. And... Um... I was really used really strong language there to sort of um, apologise. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> strong I, language, strong opinions. David Wanniams gets very annoyed at the cinema. And one time we were watching uh, Get Carter was re-released at the cinema. And we went to see it, I think, at the, I want to say the Plaza on Regent Street. And um, two sort of bearded men, older than us, but guys had obviously had like four pints. We're enjoying the movie, but doing that thing where they were basically saying the lines before they came on screen. Right. They thought it was Rocky Horror or something. Yeah. Which you can imagine how irritating that is. Yeah. We must have been in our early 20s and these guys were in their sort of 30s, but they seemed more sort of like masculine than either me or Wanniam. They probably were. And Wanniam stuck his face through the, the, the gap in the seat in between these guys and said... Shut the fuck up and watch the fucking film, you morons. <laughs> and I was like both incredibly impressed and then have that feeling of like, we are going to die tonight. Yeah. Like these guys are going to kill us. Because what are the chances that a couple of beery guys are going to say, oh, sorry. They did shut up. I then spent the rest of the film thinking that we were going to get stabbed afterwards. Yeah, you, hard to enjoy it after that. Well, it's quite a tense film, so maybe it added to okay. it. Okay. <laughs> there were no reprisals, but I was like, you know when somebody is like your raw, would it be id? What would it be? Where somebody is like saying exactly what you're thinking. Uh-huh. And the Walliams did it. It was, I was thinking it, and then he said it. And he said it in no uncertain terms. Like, Walliams. not just to say, shut the fuck up and watch the film, you, you fucking morons. He's just it's like using the word mor- <laughs> moron is quite a strong word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that would be the last one I would reach for in a public confrontation. This is, I must stress, this is an earlier Walliams. An in earlier incarnation of, of Walliams. incarnation of Walliams from probably about like late 90s, early He hadn't written any children's books at that point. Pre, pre-success... <laughs> Yeah, he's, he always seemed quite, like, angsty and angry before he got really well-known. And now he seems a little bit more... 
You know what well, I mean? Like I usually think... it goes the other way. You know, people are, are lighthearted, then they become successful and, and they turn into like big bags of douche. I don't I mean, I don't I know. Think, really. No, I think there's something. We were just talking about that at lunch, actually, because yeah, I think in terms of careers and stuff, it's not... Obviously, like, talent plays a big part of it, but tenacity plays an equally big part. You have to kind of, like, keep, doing keep it. at it. And I think sort of those guys... Yeah, I was always very proud of them because they sort of went through... Sort of Matt and Dave s- you're talking about. Yeah, several ups and downs before then it finally kind of hit. And I was involved in one of their TV shows, actually. Two of them I did. I actually did the one that kind of, like, knocked them off the BBC for a while. What was that one? <laughs> Sir Bernard's Stately Homes. Oh, yeah. So they were on, like, a sort of path where they had done... I'd done a... Uh, I should back up a little bit with them because, actually... They'd done rock profiles by that point. No, rock profiles was afterwards. This is the thing, this is how the way things work. It's it's fascinating. Is the rock profiles, in a way, was seen as like maybe a little come down initially because it was like they had a chance of doing a show on the BBC, on proper network TV. It didn't do well and it got really bad reviews. And then, sort of, tail slightly between their legs. The only thing that they could get on the BBC was like, oh, would you like to do links in between these videos? So I think initially it was something that, like, oh, I guess we better do it because we don't have any other offers. And it was even on BBC Three, wasn't it? Well, BBC Choice at Choice the time. Choice as it was, yeah. So, but then they turned that into gold. Do you know what I mean? And then it's like that's what started sort of the, that phenomenon of the two of them kind of, like, happening was doing those silly rock, rock profiles things that were still really funny. Yeah. Listeners, if you haven't seen them, you can find them on YouTube, presumably. Yeah. The one, I remember the one with the Bee Gees where he was... Like Barry a, Gibb, a lion. And he was the, in the lion other two. Makeup. Robin and Maurice couldn't talk, right? Unless he clicked his fingers for one and rang a bell for the other. <laughs> and it was before the other classic was... one is the Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey one. That's oh, I think those yes. are the two like best ones. Tom Jones and Shirley Bassey and the Bee Gees ones are with fantastic. Matt as Shirley Bassey. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't yeah. got the range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. <laughs> uh, they, they were great, and it was before really people had properly got stuck into lampooning celebrities as far as i recall for like mm. comedic purposes like was it even pre-bow selector yes yeah i think so but you did your best to make things go wrong for them with, uh... <laughs> i owe them my break in a way because we sort of tangentially sort of linked we could come back to that in a second but the first tv job i ever had in 1995 when i was 21 years old was I directed Matt and Dave in a sketch show for the Paramount Comedy Channel called Mash and Peas. Oh, yeah. And how that came about was because I had made my first movie when I was 20, and I had moved to London to edit it. Fistful of Fingers. Yes, this, um, which was a 16 mil film that cost like 20 grand. There was a clip of that in Takeover TV, wasn't there? There was, of the original Video 8 version. I did two versions of that movie. I did right. one on video... And then after art college, I reshot it on film. Takeover TV, listeners, was the show that Joe and I first did on Channel 4. Yeah. I know. It was funny. Around that time, so we never met through Takeover TV, but obviously I saw it all, and you were very sort of prominent in it and, and very funny. And it was obvious. Well, it was funny. I have a, there's a couple of things linked there. Is, um, so I had sent things into Takeover TV, and as I recall, they didn't give you any fee for the clips on that show? No, it was pretty bargain basement. It was a... It was a a show for those who haven't seen it that was, well, it was a bit like YouTube. Mm. Um, but it was mainly, you know, it was public access, I suppose, because there was never really a thriving public access scene in the UK the way that there is in a lot of towns in the States. People were encouraged to send in home videos. So there was the first series of this show was all people sort of going, why aren't the council doing anything about the terrible state of the bin areas and all this sort of stuff? 
because that was like what real people were like apparently yeah but then of course there was all these people like you and like me and joe and lots of other people making stupid fun videos that you now kind of see on on youtube and so eventually we started getting that stuff in we were two of the people myself and joe who went through a lot of the tapes that were sent in yes it was 95 percent dog shit <laughs> i mean just absolutely worthless because we we're desperate like anything half good we we're gonna stick it on i mean you said generously that we were funny on that show i mean it, i couldn't really watch that program now without getting very sad well i remember i had the hunt with them and i remember i was mad because i watched one of the episodes and i'd sent in this like hour-long film and they had cut it up into chunks and just spread it throughout an episode yes which meant that anytime it returned to it it had no credit and that kind of really annoyed me because, you know, the only thing you've got, if you're not getting paid, the only thing you've got is that your credit is on there. So then, like, clips of it would be on with no credit. And I was like, would it kill you to just put up the name of the filmmaker every time it comes up? Yes, yes. But, um, no, there were lots of things like that. I mean, the, unfortunately, yes, there wasn't the same level of respect that you would, pro- you know, that, that would be in place nowadays with that kind of show. Well, um, get this. I know th- I'm sure I've told you this story before. That around the same time as TakeOver TV... Uh, the only job in TV that I ever had when I wasn't directing, I was very, very fortunate to start young, and that was through Matt and Dave seeing my film. But in between finishing art college in 94, shooting this silly uh, first film in that summer, I then moved to London to edit it, edited the movie on absolutely no money, and, and sort of didn't really have the money to properly finish the film initially. So I had to get a job, and I got a job It was my only non-directing TV job. I was a researcher on a show called Beatles Hot Shots. Oh, right. Which was essentially like the mainstream ITV version of TakeOver TV. That's right. I remember being very upset about it. (laughs) Well, thinking, Beatle? He's just, he's only gone and stolen our idea, but done it all slick and mainstream. Well, here's the funny thing with that show. So Beatles Hot Shots was a spinoff of You've Been Framed, which for international listeners is like the british version of america's funniest home videos and you would get for a clip of somebody falling over 250 quid yeah on beatles hot shots the idea is viewers send in their sketches and it was 500 pounds per clip and that is in 1994 money so that's a lot of money yeah yeah it'd be a lot of money now if they had that So here's the thing is, I was involved in the pilot and they used one of my clips from Fistful of Fingers. In fact, I don't think Fistful of Fingers was in TakeOver TV. I think the clips in TakeOver TV were from a different film called Dead Right, which was a cop movie, which sort of became the the tiny seed for Hot Fuzz. I just remember a guy in a shootout shoving the barrel of a gun through the back of someone's head so that it came out of his mouth and then he carried on shooting. That was Dead Right, yeah. Which is actually on the Hot Fuzz DVD as like an extra. So I was involved in the pilot of Beatles Hot Shots and they showed clips of the video version of Fist for the Fingers and I got my 500 quid. And then the producer asked me to be a researcher on the show and to basically do exactly what you were talking about. It's like, look through the sketches. Search through the dog shit. <laughs> yes. So, but here's the thing. And this is, and I've, I've never really told this story properly before. I've sort of alluded to it. Beatles Hot Shots was not a hit. If it had been a big hit this would have been a News of the World sort of scandal on a Sunday morning. So that show was on ITV and it was six half hours. 
And I would say that a third of the clips I shot myself. Oh. <laughs> because, as you just said, the actual submissions, there was not enough to fill six half hours. Yeah. So this is the two things that happened. And I can tell the story now because Jeremy Beadle is no longer with us. Also, he had absolutely no knowledge that I was fabricating some of the clips. But there basically was not enough stuff. Idea number one was, okay, go through what there is and we'll pick out the best ones. And there were some good ones, but not enough for six half hours. Number two is take the clips that are like good ideas, but terribly shot and go and reshoot them for the people. So that was something that I did on that show. And would you get in touch with those people and explain that that's what you were going to do? Yeah, I would get in touch with them directly. But it would be something where it was me as, and I was a 20 year old researcher. So it wouldn't really be sort of any more official than that. It's like, oh, I'm working on Beatles Hot Shots. We really like your sketch, but it's not broadcastable. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that it's too dog shit. <laughs> so I, so I basically, um, I re-edited a lot of clips with the editor on the show, Zimit and Better. I reshot some with members of the public, which was actually, even though it was, you know, immediately breaking the premise of the show, it was actually a lot of fun. And I'm sure, like, yeah. But um, I always thought about that in terms of, and then there were some sketches where there still wasn't enough to fill six half hours that me and my brother and my friends just shot stuff, usually without our faces in it. Jeremy Beadle had no idea at all. <laughs> and in fact, even the checks for 500 quid, because they had to send them somewhere, were like sent to like my dad instead of me. Okay. Oh my God. So you even got the money. <laughs> well, they had to, it was like, yeah. I guess to balance the books sure. is like sort of... Um, Complete the charade. But I always thought if that show had been a bigger hit, that would have been a proper scandal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might still be. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Beadle, God bless you. I'm sorry. You didn't know anything about it, so he's completely innocent. <laughs> but the thing is that pre the BBC scandals, I guess the Queen was the watershed, wasn't it? When they, what was the Queen one? The Queen was when they re-edited a sequence in a documentary about the royal family oh, yeah. to make it look as if the Queen... She walked out on Annie Leibovitz. Right. Was pissed off. Is that, the was that what it was? Exactly right, yeah. And actually they just reordered the sequence a little bit to... to make it uh, to reinforce their narrative and it was a massive massive scandal and the bbc was never the same and now has to run through all sorts of checks and balances to ensure absolute transparency quite right to ensure that the license payers aren't being swindled but even when we were on xfm i remember um doing competitions in 2006 and you'd have to have competitions that was but they were foisted upon you it's like all right you got the (laughs) <laughs> 10 to 1 slot on a Saturday what competitions are you going to do kind of thing we got all the stuff that we give away and we're like okay we'll come up with some competitions so we came up with some lame stuff and said alright competition time we had a little jingle and everything and no one would enter <laughs> you know why would they either there weren't enough people listening or the people that were listening just thought I'm not going to enter a competition <laughs> so you'd have to make up winners so we'd make up mates and you just say, listen, you know, would you pretend to be a person that has entered this competition? <laughs> it didn't always happen. Yeah, yeah. But it did happen once or twice. Yeah. And you just do it to, for the sake of filling up airtime and, and keeping the show running. Because the alternative was just a sort of humiliating climb down. You may, you may remember we uh, launched the competition in the last half hour. Well, no, no one's entered. And um, I think we're not going to be able to do the competition now. So... Uh, <laughs> forget we ever mentioned it here's uh, the darkness so you have that everyone did that that's just the way things work it's like duh sometimes there's not the enthusiasm so you have to it's entertainment it's showbiz that's what it is then the idea that everything had to be 
100% real. Just seemed <laughs> bizarre. I mean, it can't it was, be it was, I, I think about it like sort of, uh, it was something where I was in London for the first time. I was working at London TV Centre. I mean, I was getting paid, but also like I knew how to order cabs all of a sudden, which is like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know what the cab number is and I know what the cab number is. Cab on I'm account. I'm never paying for a cab ever yeah, again. Man. Cab on account. Those um, were the days. <laughs> and then someone would always, there'd be one person that ruined it by sort of going to Manchester or something when they were. I ruined, the, in one of the edit suites where I had a little edit suite where I could watch tapes and sometimes edit things, there was a phone there and I just like, I would just make long distance calls all the time. <laughs> and then it got cut off. So I ruined that one. It is, it's one of the greatest feelings in life though, <laughs> to suddenly stumble upon a little loophole. Like the money that, tap. Like, yeah. Like, oh, hello. It's like someone, uh, there was nobody's even, checking on this. I'm just going to abuse someone's it. Someone's just forgotten about this. <laughs> I'm just going to use it and use it and use it until it stops. It's great. Um, <laughs> wow. We've, we've talked about Takeover TV and Beatles Hot Shots. But what's funny about this is that we were sort of involved in the same show. Yeah. But probably didn't meet until like five years later. How do, I mean, I met you through Joe, I remember. I remember I met Joe in the cinema store, which is now no longer with us. And... We had that thing, which I'm sure would have happened if I'd met you first as well, where it's like, oh, we're on the same channel at the same time. We should, we should say hello to each other. Because you were making Space at that time. Yeah, Space was on Channel 4 and the Adam and Joe show was also on Channel 4, but we'd never actually met through Channel 4. So I'm trying to think where I first met you. I feel like you. I first met you at Joe's flat in Exmouth Market. Was it when we watched the Oscars or something at Joe's? Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Stayed up and watched the Oscars? That sounds right. Yeah, and then I remember also coming to an Adam and Joe rap party mm. in Clerkenwell. Yeah, at the Farringdon, TARDIS. At the TARDIS. And a couple of interesting things happened there. I remember, uh, maybe that's where I met Garth Jennings for the first time. Uh-huh. But I remember also after that, as chronicled in his biography, Nick Frost got brutally beaten by a group of teenagers. Oh, yeah. That was after your party. <gasps> And I remember because he was in a quite, a, he was very drunk and I was trying to get him to come back to my house because I was a bit worried about him. And he was like, no, I've got to watch the boxing. There was some fight going on. Yeah. There was going to be fight at three in the morning. And I think he went to a kebab shop or a chip shop or something and then got like sort of pounced upon by and went to hospital. Oh no. So I actually got That's home and then I got a text from Simon like at five in the morning saying Nixon intensive care. Oh no. And he was just uh, set upon. That was after the TARDIS. Prior to that, the party had been delightful. Hey everybody in the modern time. They got to get themselves a podcast. I will do yours and you'll do mine. We're sorting out the problems of the world so fast. This is weird, isn't it? We're just sitting here. Like, this is like being in a time machine now. I haven't thought about all this the stuff for so long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the nice things about this industry is when the sort of world gets smaller and meeting you guys. And I think through that same nexus, Garth Jennings and Shinola and Michael yeah. Godridge. It's always a nice feeling when the world gets smaller. Yeah, because you went on, of course, to do quite a bit with Nigel. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, he's done something on the new film as well. So right. I, still... I mean, he was heavily involved with Scott Pilgrim, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. He did the whole score for that, which was his first score. And um, it was great. It was a great experience. Mm. I, I always remember that very sort of fondly, that period, because it wasn't like Channel 4 organized these socials themselves, but we were all on the same channel. And then it was that just the sort of kismet of actually running into each other properly yeah. in the streets, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was a really fun, fruitful time. And it was nice to 
root for everyone because I really, you know, I loved your stuff. I loved Spaced. The first person who told me about the Adam and Joe show in 96 mm. was Matt Lucas. Oh, yeah. He said, have you been watching this thing, Adam and Joe show on Channel 4? These guys are really good. I'm telling you, they're the future. He said something very prophetic like that. And I think, but the, I will admit, I didn't take his advice and didn't watch it for like a year. <laughs> I remember him saying he was the first person in sort of comedy circles that I'd heard rave about it. Oh, well, he was sort of right. I mean, to the, <laughs> to the extent that we do exist. In the future. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought my friend to your 20th anniversary show at the BFI. I brought along Phil Lord, who is the director of the Lego movie. And yes. And 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street and upcoming Han Solo movie. And Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Those are his full credits. Mm. In the wrong order. Busy. <laughs> and he's only like about 13 or something, isn't he? No, what? he's actually, he's my age. I think we're the same age. Oh, like, really? So it, it, like, so I'm 42. I think he's 41. Or... Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> but he only <laughs> knew Joe through Attack the Block and through meeting him with me. And he didn't know, and I said, oh, you should come to this and you should see Joe's, like, sort of, like... Baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's just, like, I mean, but their, their show was great. And, like, I, I sort of... Uh, it's funny because I also, also used to listen to the podcast all the time. So when, then when I was maybe whisking Joe away to write and then he wasn't doing the podcast, I would yes. feel like it was my fault. Well, good. I'm, <laughs> good. I'm glad you brought it up. I can say that because also as a listener, I was like, ah, yeah. why aren't they doing the podcast? Why aren't anymore? they doing oh. the podcast? Oh, is it because Joe's in LA with me poncing around in a manner that will almost certainly be driving Adam to incredible levels of distraction and insecurity? Yes, that uh. is the reason. So what, I'll fully take the blame if it makes you feel better. The, what was the first thing you did together then? We, um, well, we had sort of become Pally uh, probably around the same time that me and Simon were writing Shaun of the Dead. But as you know, like sort of also when somebody has another career, it's also something that I was trying to find somebody else to write with because I loved writing with Simon, but Simon would frequently have a job and then disappear. Yeah. So. So you thought, I'll steal... <laughs> Still, Adam, someone writing partner. <laughs> I'll ruin a marriage that seems very happy. Cruise in there, I'll snog that guy. <laughs> if it makes me feel better, Simon always used to feel weird about it as well. Yeah, I remember talking to Simon about it. Well, the thing that we first started writing, funny enough, we had written a treatment for it wasn't even for Marvel, it was kind of for ourselves. I had seen this, um, I'd gone into this meeting at a company called Artisan that no longer um, exist. And um, they said, oh, we have some of the Marvel properties. And they showed me this list. And, and the list was all like the B and C and D properties, not the big ones. And I immediately sort of pointed at Ant-Man. I said, oh, I know that character. And so me and Joe, this must have been 2001, we went away and wrote a treatment. 2001? Yes. It was that far back, for sure. Maybe it was 2002, but it definitely predated actually making... He was making... cheating on me in 2001. <laughs> But what's, I think it pre, definitely predates Shaun of the Dead. And I remember um, the people at Artisan, when they read our treatment, said, oh, it's really cool, but it's a bit edgier than we were imagining. We wanted something more like, you know, an Eddie Murphy type film. So they wanted something that was more like a sort of a Dr. Doolittle thing and not what we had written, which was like a sort of Mission Impossible, sort of Bourne-style superhero movie. So then that was 2001, so we just went away. And then after Shaun of the Dead, then the real Marvel came along and they said, are you interested in any of the properties? I said, well, actually, me and my friend wrote this um, thing in 2001. 
So we had written this treatment that far back and then basically we picked up on it. And then I'm, whilst me and Simon were writing Hot Fuzz, Simon had to go up four and do a voiceover. And then Joe came in. <laughs> and, but, and you know that thing where somebody sort of comes in, it might, this must be what it must be like having a mistress or something, is that like Joe came five minutes early and Simon yeah. hadn't quite left yet. Yeah. And they're so then they're sort of shuffling around, around awkwardly. And um, Simon was like, oh, hey, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you're, are you guys writing? How's it going? So then asking about the other thing that we're writing. How's it going and stuff? And then Joe had sat in Simon's warm seat to then start writing with me on something else. And Simon's walking down the fire escape, now starting to feel a bit put out. And I remember as a joke, he got to the bottom of the fire escape, it was just three floors down, and then he <laughs> shouted up, Don't forget me! <laughs> <laughs> so if it used to annoy you, take some comfort in the fact that it used to annoy Simon as well. <laughs> I did talk to Simon after doing Hot Fuzz, actually. Mm. At some sort of uh, get-together after that. I remember Paddy Considine mooching around terrifying people <laughs> in some uh, darkened room and, and you and Nick off in one corner. And I ended up talking to Simon and saying, yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? Was it weird for you? And yeah, it was very cathartic <laughs> that we both had more or less exactly the same insecurities about it. I was really insecure because, you know, I wanted to write with Joe. We wanted to do movies together. That was always part of our plan was to do something like that. But we just couldn't get it together. Just the actual business of sitting in a room and writing with someone else. There's so much going on. But for me, I mean, I, I would think that you and I are people who are quite similar temperamentally in some ways. You know, we're not the kind of people who can easily just... Um, take criticism and, and have it completely bounce off us, you know. We're not so confident that we can just um, chuck any old idea out there and, and feel absolutely nothing if it gets squashed by the other people in the room. There's all those things you have to deal with. It's a very difficult thing writing with anybody, and I think there's also a thing where I think when I wrote with Simon, I would be like the good cop, and Simon would be the sort of like, just slightly, I'll say this, you know, like this is not a criticism at all, but the, the somewhat lazy genius. When I say that, is like, like what he did write is amazing, but then it's just sometimes you feel like sort of, concentrate, man. And it's funny, like you say, about kind of getting insecure and embittered and stuff. Like, you probably wouldn't think that in, I in any way am insecure about Shaun of the Dead. However, at the time when that film came out, a thing that used to happen, which is absolutely not Simon's fault at all, um, used to kind of gnaw away at me, was that sometimes reviewers would um, sort of say star and writer Simon Pegg and director Edgar Wright and that would drive me bonkers right and it's such a tiny thing because it's like sort of a little mistake yeah but it's like I co-wrote that clues in the name (laughs) Edgar Wright So, but it, I know that's so silly, but it happened on more than one occasion. Sure, I know those things, and, and it sort of starts to kind of because then people to, sort yeah. of like, and I think one of the reasons was because I didn't co-write Space. So I think then some people just assumed that I didn't write Shaun of the Dead, and it really used to annoy me. And it was never Simon's fault. It's not that Simon would ever do that, mm. but it was that thing like this kind of weird, like sort of like black growing like oh, bile inside you. Terrible. That went away with Hot Fuzz. I think sort of that didn't become an issue anymore. And I think mainly because a lot of the stories about the development of that was the fact that it was based on my hometown and everything. 
Although weirdly, in the, I think it was in the Observer last week, I had to contact the Observer. There was an article about, I think it was about Nick. Oh, it was about Simon, and it said, um, in 2007, Peg co-wrote uh, the hit film Hot Fuzz with his best mate, Nick Frost. <laughs> it's the thing, is like, I love both these people. It's not their fault. But I am writing to The Guardian to get them to the correct it. Uh, I, actually, I actually wrote Hot Fuzz. Actually, I think you'll find... Actually, you think you'll find that I am the crazy co-writer on Hot Fuzz. I know if you're listening at home and you think that this sounds insane and I'm anyway uh, like annoyed about this, I apologize. And I'm just trying to, you know, you yeah, understand. You're being, you're being candid. I appreciate your candor. <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's like something I think that, that, that most to... people can relate. I really okay. do. I, I, I think there are very few people who are so supremely confident that these kinds of things don't get to them. And those people are generally <laughs> quite difficult to be around. I, I find it's um, funny. So, no, it's funny. But what's the here's the irony though? That is how we got the job on Tintin. Uh, it was actually Peter Jackson who first he asked me and Simon to rewrite Tintin because Stephen Moffat was writing it and he'd done like four drafts and Stephen Moffat wanted to leave. It's like I've got to go back home and start doing Doctor Who or Sherlock. I probably Sherlock at the time. Mm-hmm. So Simon wasn't really around. He was like shooting uh, Mission Impossible or something. And so I said, oh, there's this guy, Joe. Because I knew Joe, I knew Joe was a big Tintin fan. So uh, apologies if this then wrecked months and months of great podcasts that I would have enjoyed. I'm only ruining my own life. Garth stepped in and he did a great I job. I know, I heard it. He was better than Joe. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the time. <laughs> so that's how that came about. And so basically, like... And then what happened is I had to leave... Um, I did two drafts on Tintin because I was about to start shooting Scott Pilgrim. And then Joe sort of stayed on as the sole writer for a while. So I always thought that was amusing to me was that like I... It, initially it was me and Simon asked to do Tintin. Simon can't really do it. Me and Joe were at the draft. Now I can't really do it. And then Joe is suddenly in a room with Spielberg, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, Kathy Kennedy. <laughs> so it was like... So there's a thing like sort of when you're meeting Steven Spielberg... You're so aware, and this is such a sort of stupid thing, it's like sort of like, oh, I really want you to, with anybody like that, when somebody's a hero of yours, it's like sort of, how can I be impressive? It's like, don't, don't just say like the obvious things. Yeah, Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at a party in uh, Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and you know sometimes when you're not ready for something, my agent came and said, would you like to meet Mick Jagger? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah what now? <laughs> like, and I'm just not ready. And he said, sure, come and meet Mick. And then you're being escorted by your elbow to meet Mick Jagger. And you're thinking, I'm not ready for this. And then suddenly you're standing in like a sycophancy circle where Mick's meeting and greeting lots of people and being yeah. really nice. And then suddenly, like, without any prep whatsoever, your window has arrived you're on. to talk to... Some, is he, he's not a Sir Mick Jagger. He's just Mick Jagger. I is he Sir? He may well be. Mick Jagger. I think he is. I think he is because... Uh, Sir Mick. Because um, Keith Richards writes with entertaining uh, contempt about the fact that he accepted the knighthood. So, get this, and this isn't embarrassing to admit. What do you do when you suddenly have 10 seconds with Mick Jagger? Yeah. Okay, so he had just come in from New York. And I think at the time New York was in a cold snap. And literally, this sounds like the worst kind of like first date, worst speed dating ever. Is suddenly you're talking to Mick Jagger. And Brian says, oh, this is my agent, says, um... Uh, Mick, this is Edgar, uh, one of my clients, a very talented director. And he's going, oh, nice to meet you. I said, oh, you just got in from New York. Uh, Was it cold? (laughs) 
This is such a lame, just talk about the weather to Mick Jagger. And he goes, oh yeah, freezing, freezing, just being nice. And then suddenly, like, your time is already wrapping up. Yeah. And then you get in very quickly. A uh, huge fan, by the way. It's awful. Awful. Huge fan, by the way. <laughs> I know, it's awful. <laughs> so get this. So, so now to back up. Uh, uh, Spielberg, there's a thing where me and Joe would always, like, act out the voices. So we'd sort of do, it'd be funny, like, in front of Steven Spielberg, sort of doing a Tintin voice or doing a Haddock voice. And um, when I was Tintin, and this is just a default thing of maybe, like, who he is, I would sort of, Joe would say to me afterwards, he says... Why do you keep grabbing Stephen's arm when you're explaining a bit? <laughs> and that was, he, he accused me of getting over familiar that I kept touching Steven Spielberg's arm when I was trying to make a point or trying to make a joke. I was like, it's like this, and like grabbing his arm. And I was, and I was like way too over familiar. And Joe said, you keep touching his arm. It looks weird. Oh, <laughs> I was like, so I was like, I just want to see that he's real. All these uh, complex webs of insecurity and jealousy being woven. I had the much, much, much better version of the Mick Jagger thing. Yeah. Was I met Ray Davis last year. Oh, right. Who's a genuine hero. Also Sir Ray Davis. Sir Ray Davis. I'm a huge Kinks fan. And Mark Hamill did a talk with him for the big issue at Hornsey Town Hall. And it was funny because I had met Mark Hamill at a screening. Yeah. And I think Simon knew him already. So it's the first time I'd ever met Mark Hamill who couldn't be nicer. And he was in town shooting the new Star Wars movie. And, uh, and he said, oh, let's, let's get together in London. So I sort of, I, got his, I had his email. And I emailed him and said, let's have dinner or something. And he goes, are you a Kinks fan? I said, yes, I am a huge Kinks fan. He goes, well, I'm interviewing Ray Davis on Sunday night. Do you want to come to that? I said, uh, yes. So the Mick Jagger thing makes me still cringe even thinking about it. It's like, what an awful, awful waste of 10 seconds of his life <laughs> to ask him about I'm the sure weather. he's still furious big, about it big fan by the way oh, <laughs> yeah. awful but Ray Davis I got I, you know Ray Davis was in this dressing room and I said to Mike I said, can you introduce me to Ray Davis and he came out oh Ray this is Edgar Wright he directed Shaun of the Dead and then Ray Davis said to me he goes oh he goes the Winchester's around the corner from my house because he lives on um, Highgate Hill and the real pub where Simon and Nick used to hang out was called The Shepherds. It's now The Boogaloo. And then one down... And that's essentially The Shepherds in Highgate, now The Boogaloo, was what we based the film on. But one pub down, there was a place called The Winchester Park Tavern. It's now been knocked down. So Ray Davis informed me that The Winchester had been knocked down. Right. So it was the sweetest thing. It was like, oh, yeah, he's actually asking me things. Yeah, he's engaging with you. That's engaging great. Engaging with me. But there's another flip to this that then quite makes sense. It's just so thinking, oh, my God, like Ray Davis has seen the film. And he goes, yeah, I know. I live around the corner from The Winchester. He goes, love that film. Great stuff. Great stuff. I was thinking, oh, my God, thank you so much. And I said, of course, I'm a big fan. He said, I used two of your songs in Hot Fuzz. And then he looked completely lost. Like thinking, you aren't aware that I used two of your songs in Hot Fuzz. Because <laughs> he just tapped me on the arm and goes, good stuff, mate. <laughs> like, I know he said, good on you, mate. But I kind of thought, I got that sense of thinking, I, he has no idea that two of his songs are in Hot Fuzz. They would have checked with him. They, they, don't they have to? I think maybe or they some, just check with the publishers? Maybe. I suspect when you're that big and your songs are that well used, that maybe just residuous checks start flowing in and like the actual, you know, source of them is not important after a while. I would have thought that he'd be fairly careful. Maybe. Yeah, sometimes people are not kind of completely aware that you use their stuff. I mean, that song, anyway, was so, that song is almost, that Village Green Preservation Society is almost the template for the whole film, isn't it? I mean, they're well, lyrically. It's, it's weird. There's two things with Hot Fuzz and The World's End. One is that somebody on um, Twitter said, 
have you thought that the world's end is a prediction of Brexit? Because at the end of the movie, Simon's character, Gary King, tells the all-powerful network to, like, fuck off, you know, like, we'll make our own mistakes, you nobody tells us what to do. And the network in the movie are so sort of tired of the ignorant, belligerent humans that they leave the planet and send us back into the dark ages. That's the end of that movie. And then somebody said, do you not think that Gary King sort of, uh, you know, uh, telling Farage. the to fuck off? It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's Farage triggering like Article 50. I thought, you're right. Right. And then even weirder, in Hot Fuzz, Jim Broadbent's character says, whatever the cost, we will make Sanford great again. <laughs> he says that out loud. And so I think sort of, I've had several, because I think Hot Fuzz is the only film of mine that's on Netflix. And I've had several, um, several people have said the same thing, saying, was watching Hot Fuzz to take my mind off election anxieties. And then Jim Broadbent says, we will make Sanford great again. <laughs> that film is, my, my Twitter timeline lights up every time it's on, obviously. People ask me, this is something, I'm going to answer a question, because I get asked it all the time. Yeah. People say, do you get paid every time it's on ITV2? And the answer is no. No. <laughs> so, no, I don't. And I have no control over it being, I'm very flattered, though, that it is on TV all the time. It's a very, I mean, Sean and Hot Fuzz are on TV all the time. And that can only mean that it still rates. There's the only reason that they yeah. keep putting it on. Well, it's so good. I watch it, I like it more every time I see it. It's one of those films, actually, that I do sit and watch and sometimes I forget that I pop up in it I, I actually it was I was the other day I was flicking through the channels and it was on and I couldn't stop watching the last half and I fucking made the movie <laughs> yeah stupid. it's got lots of funny stuff Mike uh, and the th- what was it that really made me laugh when Nick gets hit in the head by the bin is the first real <laughs> big laugh for me and the other thing that really makes me laugh is when Carl Johnson who plays one of the old coppers um, just keep saying church <laughs> When Olivia Coleman is speaking. <laughs> he also says as well, like, um, he just says cocks. Cocks. Yeah, he just said it says random <laughs> expletives at various points. <laughs> God, that was fun. That was funny. Your death scene is, I mean, that was on my walk to school. That church is five minutes walk around the corner from my old family house. Right. It was a sort of an amazing and weird experience to shoot that film in my hometown. Were any of the locals actually a bit pissed off with the disruption? There was, yes. Well, what happened was, um, as it went on, it's the same, you know this with filming, is that people are always excited for day one. Yes. And then once they realise that it's boring and it's going to be an obstruction to traffic. They're going to close roads and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly anything to do with parking, then people get, like, properly, like, murderous about that and be really angry. And we filmed in the town square for, like, ten days. And most people on board, but there was one shop that was very prominently in position, a clothes shop, I think it's no longer there. And they started a campaign in the local paper to get rid of us. Oh, It's no. like, we're losing trade. And they had this figure, we're losing like 400 pounds a day because of filming. So you can't bribe these people because if you bribe somebody, it'll get around very quickly in a small town. So the only thing that we could do is um, the line producer just got petty cash and basically anybody passing, we would give them money and say, go and buy some clothes in that shop. No way. So my mum and dad came down to visit. And I said to mum, I said, mum, here's 200 pounds. Go and buy some clothes in that shop. And I was still filming. And I remember my mum brought out the clothes to me. She goes, do you think I should get this or get this? I said, I don't care. Just buy it. It's Beatles so- Hot Shots all over again. 
Oh, this is the thing. I'm the corrupt one. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the one who's like sort of like riddled with corruption. That's right. I'm the terrible evil guy. That's, yeah, it's man. me. The, oh, this is the twist of this podcast. The media elite. Is this elite. your Frost Nixon moment? Absolutely. <laughs> Got you on the run. One other thing that, yeah. I, that I remember that happened, like people like from my past would come up to me whilst I was filming. One time I was like, I wouldn't even say an ex-girlfriend. I, a girl that, like, and this is for UK listeners, not international listeners, that I had got off with at a party. You know what got off with means? Americans don't. I, I now realise that. Some lovely Snogging. kissing. Strictly first base stuff. I got off with this girl at this party whose name was Sarah. And then I think later at the same party, she had got off with somebody else and I was heartbroken. Sarah. And that was the end of my brief dalliance with Sarah. I don't think I ever spoke to her again at school. Quite right. Um, cut to <laughs> like 16 years later filming Hot Fuzz this lady Sarah who's now a woman who's also now a mother she's now a woman she's now a woman. Um, a woman I'm standing in the street and we're about to shoot a shot or we're setting up for a shot and this kid has a Shaun of the Dead DVD and he runs across the street and he says Mr. Wright could you sign my DVD and just as I get my Sharpie out to sign it this woman Sarah comes around the corner and says very loudly this is the first time I've spoken to her or she's spoken to me since the party since the very loud she goes no Edgar Wright I don't want your autograph <laughs> and stomped off no way seriously I thought wow I, I ain't done anything wrong I, I know, know why, so why you should have called me. after you're the one that snogged the other guy at the party I said listen you got off with Johnny Harris after me that's on you you snogged Johnny Harris as well no 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 she did oh. John if you're listening you know it's true Go on, pick up a pie, honey. Come on, come on. You can wiggle it now. I'm so glad for you. Swing it, honey, as hard as you can. Go on, go on. Forget there's anyone else here. You can't believe it. Were you able to enjoy making Hot Fuzz? Do you generally enjoy yourself while you're making films, or is it just overwhelmingly tiring and stressful? Well, my producer, Naira Park, who you know, Every time I get into like sort of a pit of absolute despair on a movie, which is on every movie as it turns out, mm-hmm. she reminds me of the previous email that I sent when I was suicidal. <laughs> so I think every movie... One thing I say, and it's funny actually getting to know like Garth Jennings, is I always, like, whenever I watch Garth at work, I was thinking, oh, I'd love to be as upbeat as Garth is making a movie. Because usually, I think whatever I am like in person... Normally, when I'm with you, I sort of when I'm actually shooting, I get very. I'm not like a sh- a shouter. I never like shout, but I sulk and I can get into a really like black mood. It's never like things going badly. It's just like there's always too much to do and not enough time. So I wish I could enjoy myself more on movies. Sean, I did not have a good time. There was like a, an element on the movie sort of conspired to sort of ruin the actual enjoyment of making it which was really annoying. Are you talking about just people being obtuse? and? There um... was one element of the crew on Shaun of the Dead that were just not on board at all and had a real sort of Jekyll and Hyde moment where they couldn't have been nicer during the prep. And then on day one of the shoot, is like they were just against the movie and me and Simon and Nick. I won't say what department because I don't want to badmouth them. But they said to me and Nick and Simon, all within the space of a day, said, remember this is film and not video, dear. And I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> like, this is like a real, like, sort of like, oh, I'm being belittled on my own, like, movie. Put you in your members. place. Yeah. I know. It's not Beatles Hot Shots now. <laughs> but, um, or maybe it is. 
<laughs> it was a very weird thing. And it, it's funny. I knew I had to get myself out of a funk about it. And like, I think I remember on Shaun of the Dead, I got really depressed about it. Like sort of because it was something where my dream of making the movie I wanted to make was happening. It's something that me and Simon had been trying to get together for years. And, you know, I'd made a movie when I was 20, but Shaun Dead felt like I have a chance to make a real movie and I can visualize it. I can see it. And I've been wanting to make this for several years now. And also when you've made a movie when you're 20 and it didn't do that great. And then you get a second chance. It's like, I've literally got a second shot on my debut movie because nobody remembers the first one. In fact, when I did press for Shaun of the Dead in the States, if people said, no, with your debut movie, Shaun of the Dead, I would never correct them. Uh-huh. <laughs> in, this, in the UK, it was different because lots of people had reviewed it here. So it's a very strange thing that when suddenly there's like a element that are not on your side. Mm. It was awful. And did you ever identify why it was that they were annoyed with you? Or? I think they had no faith in the movie. Right. You know, so I'm they're sure just, privately right. when me and Simon and Nick are not in earshot, they're saying, what the fuck is this shit? In fact, somebody, <laughs> somebody literally, as you might imagine, you've seen me on set. I very frequently, people assume that I was I'm probably a PA and not the actual director. Maybe not anymore, but definitely on like Sean and Hot Fuzz that used to happen a lot. And on Sean of the Dead, one of the older zombies who was not one of our friends, a lot of our friends are playing zombies in that, but um, one of the older zombies came up to me, assumed I was a runner, and he stood next to me, looked at the set, and he goes, whew, straight to video for this one. (laughs) (laughs) And I just went, yeah. (laughs) like. Hoffers was different because actually everybody was on board, like the crew. And in fact, every crew member except the um, the Black Marks in um, Sean returned for Hot Fuzz. So you can probably quite easily figure it out on IMDb if you wanted to. But on Hot Fuzz, it was like sort of, the crew were great. But then you had the added challenge of having this insane cast of like acting legends that you assembled. I mean, look, I've got my call sheet here. This it's is incredible. This is one one day... Saturday the 3rd of June 2006, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Timothy Dalton, Jim Broadbent, Paddy Considine, Rafe Spall, Kevin Eldon, Olivia Coleman, Carl Johnson, Edward Woodward, Billy Whitelaw, Anne Reid, Adam Buxton, (laughs) unbelievable, he's amazing people but you know that must have been and and all of those very strong personalities as well, actors with a huge amount of experience and that 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 must have been I mean that was never a problem actually. Uh, I think what happens with those in that situation is you might be able to kind of establish actors that might be divas on other sets, but if they are are confident in the film, then it'll be okay. And the good news on that was that even these big and established actors, I think because everybody else was in it as well, and I think the mood comes from the top down. And I've been very lucky on Sean and Hot Fuzz at least and World's End is even if I can sometimes be in a bad mood, Simon and Nick are like the nicest guys to have at the center of the film. And when I've done movies without them, I probably had to be a lot more personable. Right. So on Scott Pilgrim, I think I was probably in a much better mood and a lot more personable because I'm working with a young cast and I'm in charge and I haven't got Simon and Nick. You didn't have any of your regulars be, there, did you? Uh, the crew members I did. Oh, you did, right. In fact, a lot of crew members, some of my crew members, like my production designer and editors... And um, sound guys have like remained the same since space, and my producer as well. There's some people that have gone through right from space all the way through to Baby Driver, but I think I would rely on Simon and Nick to be the good cops. 
and I could be the sulky one on set. And I, it's something I'm not proud of at all. I wish I could be in a better mood. And even on this new one, I reached a point in the middle of Baby Driver where I was at my lowest. And usually I sort of realize it's just sleep deprivation, irritability, like sort of... Malnutrition. Uh, malnutrition and, yeah. and sleep deprivation. There's a point on Baby Driver where I was shooting main unit and parts of second unit, or at least overseeing the second unit at the same time. And one was a night shoot and one was a day shoot. And so I'd end up like being on set for like 20 hours and getting four hours sleep. There was a space for about 20 days where I was shooting every single day. And I was at absolutely incredibly bleak mood. Naira is always the one to talk me down. Because I'm, I'm really proud of the new movie. It's, it's, it's turned out really well and I'm really happy about it. But it's that thing where she's, she never like is annoying enough to say, remember when you thought it was going to be shit <laughs> in the middle of the shoot? But I'm like that with every film. I always think everything's going to be shit. Right. It's not good. I mean, on the flip side... If you're really happy all the time and you're happy with everything and you're going home early, there's probably also a problem. Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. Like, if you're making a comedy and everybody's having too much of a good time, that's usually, like, a, um, usually... I think you can identify those films. When you see them, you just think, oh, they must have all been howling with laughter that day. Yeah. And it would have been great if they'd um, concentrated a bit more on chopping certain elements back or whatever. Yeah, I think you can... I think, sort of, that said, is it would be nice to sort of actually enjoy the process a bit more. Yeah. Well, for us, the actors on Hot Fuzz... It was a hoot. And everyone used to hang out in the evenings when we were in Wells. Yeah. And there was a lot of social engagements. I remember a bowling competition one evening. Hanging out in Simon's trailer, I remember, with Paddy Considine and a few people. And I remember Paddy flipping through this big wallet of DVDs that Simon had. Yeah. And he had like every single Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. <laughs> and Paddy Considine was just rolling his eyes. He's like, what, what, what the fuck is all this shit you got? That's not a good impression of Paddy Considine. But um, I remember Simon looking a little bit hurt. <laughs> hey, that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's good stuff. But no, it was fun. The only time when I felt quite out of my depth was doing a scene with Tim Dalton. Oh, he slapped you on the back pretty hard, right? When he slapped me on the back. <laughs> and like his, his character was supposed to be annoyed with my character, Tim yeah. Messenger. I'm the annoying local reporter. And he turns out to be, uh, spoiler alert, you know, one of the big bad guys in the village. And he comes and he had to clap me on the back. <laughs> like quite hard. <laughs> but he really genuinely did like smack me on the back. And we did it several times. So after a while, my back was stinging and also it would shock me every time so that I found it hard to deliver my line. <laughs> and uh, I think I said to him eventually, like, when you, you know when you slap me on the back there? That is quite hard. <laughs> do you have to do it quite that hard? And uh, he just looked at me like, what are you even doing here? <laughs> that would be an even funnier situation if you were playing like a... Um like a henchman in a Bond film. Yeah. Saying, um, Timothy, uh, in that scene there, you, you, when you hit me, you don't have to hit me I wouldn't say it in that voice. That's the voice you did. <laughs> you don't have to punch me quite so hard. It look real. With film tricks, you can do it so that it doesn't actually hurt. I don't know if you know that. But I was thinking that, like, mate, no one's going to know if you just act slapping me on the back. They can put a sound in. You don't have to genuinely wind me every time I, I mean he's amazing in the movie I loved 
work with him. And mm. I like, I think afterwards, you know, like um, one of the best things about him, and this is not a bad thing at all. He's just one of those people that doesn't suffer fools gladly, mm. you know, but he's somebody also that I never really, I feel very fortunate that I didn't really have to explain how to do it. And I've had other situations where you do have to explain like, oh, it would be so much funnier if you did it straighter. With Timothy, you never really had to say that. And like for somebody to come on and just nail the tone of it immediately, it was just like, oh, this is great. I couldn't think of somebody better doing that. And he slays every line that he does. It's just beautiful. But I do remember there was one thing, I'm not sure if I've ever told this story. This is actually almost going back to sort of David Walliam saying out loud the things that you're thinking. Yeah. So one of the things that would happen, and it would happen to him a lot, and I remember Nick Frost saying this thing about Timothy Darwin. He said, um, if he played James Bond, it's like as being as famous as a president. They're not former President Barack Obama or former President Jimmy Carter. They are President Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And Bond is exactly the same. You're always James Bond. So it was an interesting thing that out of all of those actors, Jim Broadbent, Simon and Nick, Billy Whitelaw, Edward Woodward, by far the biggest amount of autographs would be for Timothy Dong because he's Bond. And every person in that town, every publican in a location would seem to have a copy of The Living Daylights under their bar. Right. Somebody would be hiding in the bushes when we're shooting a scene saying, oh, Timothy. And they'd have their Bond annual or something. So you'd see he'd bristle at it a little bit because yeah. he's trying to concentrate. And I'm sure if like, it's a blessing and a curse being James Bond. But I do remember, and this really made me laugh, we're standing in the town square and you know that thing when parents have told their children that somebody's famous, mm-hmm. but the children have no idea who that person is? Yes. It's like my children. <laughs> and the parents have said, that man there is really famous. Like, go up and ask for his autograph. And maybe they've said he's James Bond, but the kids who come up and tug on his shoulder, and this is in between takes, come up and this is what they say to Timothy. Excuse me, mister, are you famous? <laughs> and he just went... Under his breath, he went, oh, fuck off. Like that. <laughs> to like an eight-year-old and a, and a six-year-old. Five minutes later, a policewoman comes up, says, Mr. Dalton, did you just swear at two children? And he says, uh, I don't think so. And he goes, well, they definitely think you did. No, a real police person. A real police person. Oh, my goodness. So they, the kids are told, said, that man swore at us. So the policewoman came up to Timothy Dalton and said, did you swear at these kids? He goes, uh, I don't believe so. He goes, well, they definitely heard it. He says, or I, maybe I said under my breath, but I didn't intend for them to hear. I do apologize. So he apologized profusely. But I imagine the next part of the story that I imagine happening off screen is that that policewoman went back to the station and said, oh my God, you never guess what happened today. I only had to tell off James Bond. Continue. There we go. Thanks to Edgar Wright for talking to me. It is the morning after my show in Birmingham. I'm in my hotel room. The show went very well last night. Really good crowd, which included Nicola, the director. You know Nicola. She directed the Travel Man episode that I was on with Richard A. Waddy. And in fact, she pops up briefly on the second of the two episodes that I did with Richard. Uh, So if you've listened to those, you will have heard Nicola. She's based in Birmingham, along with the rest of the Travelman production team, some of whom came along as well last night. We had a little drink afterwards, which is unusually sociable for me. And as we were leaving the pub, a young couple came up to me and the guy said, and this is true, (laughs) excuse me, mate, are you famous? 
exactly like the little kids with Tim Dalton, I decided against saying, fuck off under my breath. And I just went with, well, I, I mean, I was on Travel Man and I got killed by a church in hot fuzz. Does that count? And then I posed for a selfie. It's the kind of constant harassment that makes it very difficult for me to go out in public. Despite that, I was able to make it to the venue yesterday without too much hassle. It was a beautiful hot afternoon. And at one point I found myself walking through Birmingham's busy shopping district near the Bullring Mall, where due to the current terror threat level, there were armed police in flak jackets wandering amongst the happy shoppers, while representatives from some of the major religions shared their messages. I turned on my recorder and drifted between them. And peace be upon him the day he was born, the day he dies, and the day he will be raised up to life again. Hallelujah. And we have to stand together. Together we stand, divided and fall. Hallelujah. Together we stand, divided and fall. But love conquers all. You can have prophecies. You can speak in tongues. You can do many good things. Three of the big religions represented there for you. You're welcome. A bit of Islam, some Christianity, and a slice of McFerrinism on a peaceful summer's day in Birmingham. Thought it'd be nice to end with a bit of an audio picture there for you. All right. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support and to Matt Lamont for conversation editing. I'll be back next week. Take very good care. I'm not going to shout because I'm in a hotel room. I love you. Bye. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. 
Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace.